Okay. Good evening and welcome to Bible study. We're in Judges, the second chapter, so. I got the live. Okay, I got the live on on my phone. Let me turn it down. So we're in Judges, the second chapter, so. Uh, as I said last week, uh, uh, things are going to get worse for Israel as we progress through the book. Uh, but there's some things that we can learn from our uh, study. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Bible study. Thank you for those who are here gathered and those who are watching on Facebook Live and those who will hear the podcast. Pray, Lord, that you be with us as we study your word tonight and look at Israel's failure and your mercy in their failures. And Lord, lead us to look at our own failures, our own sins, and your mercy uh, with us. Feel me with your spirit to teach this text well tonight. And Lord, send your spirit to illuminate your truth to us tonight. That we may not only learn, but that we may grow by your word and learn to adore you more and become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our hope. In his name we pray, amen. So, the second chapter, the theme of this chapter is Israel's failure, and we're going to see it. But then we're also going to see God's mercy upon Israel. You know, last week, the first chapter, we looked at how Israel failed to conquer or to complete the conquest of the land. We looked at the tribes that didn't do it. And there were several. So tonight, uh, the hits keep on coming. So as we always do, we're going to look at the different sections in this chapter. So first, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. And then verses 6 through 10 deal with a recalling a, it's a flashback to Joshua's um, death. And that's going to introduce the apostasy that is going to follow uh, after that. So let's look at verses 1 through uh, 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. And said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said... I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called on called the name of that place, Bochum or Bochum. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. So, what we have here is 
two things I want to point out. One is the angel of the Lord. Now, in some uh, translations, the A in angel is capitalized. I know in the King James Version and New King James Version it is. The angel of the Lord, when you see that in the Old Testament particularly, this angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's called uh, Christophanes. That's the theological word. Christophanes comes from two Greek words, the one being Christ and phoneo, which means appear. So when you see Christophanes, that means an appearance of Christ or Christ appears. That's the theological word. C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-A-N-I-E-S. That's called Christophanes. So when you see the angel of the Lord appearing in the Old Testament, that is the pre-incarnate Christ. You know, we talk about Christ not just appearing in the book of Matthew. You know, Christ always was. You know, Christ is eternal with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1. That shows the eternality of Christ, that Christ is eternal. Christ did not come into existence when he was born okay he always was that's why he, he told the Pharisees in John the 8th chapter before Abraham was I am that means he he's the eternal God okay he's the eternal Christ Christ has always been there was never a time when Christ was not okay we have to know that as believers so when we see angel of the Lord this is Christ appearing to the people this is the pre-incarnate and incarnate meaning when Christ was born of the flesh you know when he he came into that's why we celebrate Christmas it was celebrating the incarnation of Christ so the Old Testament we see the pre-incarnate Christ we see Christophanes the appearance of Christ or Christ appearing okay so in this passage here we see the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, came up from Gilgal to Bochum. And he was speaking to Israel, all of Israel. And what was he saying to them? I brought you up out of Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to your fathers. Okay, so this angel was God's representative speaking with the authority of the Lord about their apostasy. And we'll see him again appear to them throughout the book of Judges. We will see the angel of the Lord appearing to Israel. So, when he says, I brought you up, he's speaking plural about the entire nation. And I say, I will never break my covenant with you. This shows the faithfulness of God to his people. God does not break covenant with us. God is faithful. God is always faithful. That's his nature. God is always going to be faithful to us. He's always going to be faithful to who he is. God is consistent with his character. God is not, he, he doesn't, he's not fickled. Okay? God will never break covenant. 
He will be faithful until the end. But Israel is the one who is, is going to show themselves to be unfaithful. They're going to forfeit. They're going to forfeit the blessings that come with obedience to God. Their disobedience is going to bring trouble on them. And that's what we see in verse three. The first he says, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. But we saw them doing that. They compromised. We saw that in the last chapter. They held the Canaanites forced labor, didn't drive them out completely. That's verse 28 of chapter 1. Verse 30 of chapter 1, Zebulon, the Canaanites lived among them. Uh, verse 31, in Asher, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. Nephtali, in verse 33, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath uh, became subject to labor for them. So again, the Canaanites dwelt among them. And the Amorites in verse 34, they pushed the tribe of Dan back up into the mountain. So we see Israel broke covenant with God. So it says, and you shall make, sir. Amen. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars instead. That's what they were supposed to do. But what did the angel say? But you have not obeyed my voice. When we fail to worship God as believers, we're not being obedient to God. God tells us the first commandment. Look at the Ten Commandments. You got the first two commandments. God says you have no, no other gods before him. He alone is God. We should have no other gods before him. Anytime we do that, we're disobeying God because he is God and God alone. He alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is the object of our worship. And we all of us fail to do that. All of us fail to obey God. All of us fail to worship God alone. That's why we have to constantly Pray and ask God. We have to constantly seek God through his word, through prayer. Because we're all prone to idolatry just as Israel is. So the angel told them, you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Why have you not obeyed my voice? Why have you not heeded me? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, man, and that God shall be a snare to you. So. The Lord brought them out of Egypt. Showing his great love and faithfulness to them, he delivered them from Egyptian bondage. He gave them. The abundant land of promise. He gave them this land. A land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them a covenant that he would never break. God reminded them that. That God will live up to his part of the covenant. But Israel did not obey. They did not obey. They had a spiritual problem. They did not obey God's voice. So what did the angel say? The angel said, I will not drive out them from before you, but they shall be thorns in your side. So the angel of the Lord announced that 
he would allow the work of possessing the land to go unfinished. And this was a way of correcting Israel. Now, it was a form of chastisement that there would be thorns in their side. Why was he chastising them? Because they failed to drive them out. There was a consequence for them not doing that. But God never intended it to be that way. All Israel had to do was obey and drive out all the inhabitants. Yes, they're gods, they're idols. That's right. Because, yeah, it says that, yep, they're, they're idols. Those pagan gods led Israel astray. Israel allowed them to because they didn't drive them out. If you get rid of them, guess what? They don't have to worry about that, that, uh, that influence, that problem. But because they didn't drive them out, because they didn't tear down their altars, guess what? And, and, and this is how we thought about this before in dealing with sin. We have to constantly put it to death. Uh, Paul talks about that in Colossians, I think the third chapter, about mortifying the deeds of the flesh, putting the deeds of the flesh uh, to death. We have to constantly, that's why I always say that the biblical principle that true Christians struggle against sin. True Christians don't live in sin. We constantly are fighting against it with the Spirit's help. Not a, it's not a helpless fight. We, we constantly are putting sin to death. We're constantly praying and asking the Lord, take these sinful desires away from me. We're constantly confessing our sins. We're constantly repenting and turning away from our sins. Those enslaving habits that we have. We don't just say, oh, well, I might as well just do it anyway. No, we fight on our knees. Lord, take this away. Lord, take this desire away. Lord, take this sinful feeling away. Lord, take those sinful thoughts away. Lord, help me to, to resist the temptation to sin because we know that if we don't get rid of that sin, it's going to infect us. It's going to affect us. It's going to take our desires away from God. So God knew in his wisdom that Israel had to get rid of these idols of these pagans because if not, they're going to draw them away. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen. So God said, I will not drive them out for you because this was a punishment for them. You have two things we have to balance here. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because sometimes we can wish that God would do the work of maturity for us. That we'll wake up one morning and, uh, you know, all of our besetting sins would, would, would just be gone. Sometimes God does grant us miraculous deliverance over certain things. And we praise him for that when that happens. But more commonly, more often than not, we work with God's help to grow, to be sanctified. There's work that we have to do. We have to read our Bibles. We have to pray to God and commune with him. We have to fellowship with the saints. We have to participate in these Sacraments, the Lord's Supper, participating in fellowshipping. Those are the what they call the means of grace that God gives us to grow. Prayer, scripture reading, fellowship, observing uh, the communion table and observing baptism when that happens. Those are means of, of growth that God gives all believers. You can't grow in isolation. 
You can't grow when you're isolating yourself from the body of Christ or you're isolating yourself from prayer or you're isolating yourself from, from scripture reading. That's why I give us Bible reading challenges to, to help us to see the importance of just regular Bible reading and, and, and praying and, and seeing God's story unfold in scripture because, man, that helps us to grow. And the more God, through his spirit, works his word into us, the stronger we get spiritually, and then we'll be able to easily resist those temptations to sin. So we're basically like in partnership with God. So he said, there should be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. <laughs> Man, so the Canaanites are going to just remain problems for Israel. Look at Numbers 33 and 55. God told them this would happen. This was back when they were in the wilderness. This was some, I don't know, about 80 years after, the, after they'd been out in the wilderness. A little bit more. Look at Numbers 33 and 55. The thing about God, God is faithful in his promises. He's also faithful in his judgments. If you look at Numbers 33 and 55. Man, the Lord is so good. I always say, I, I said this a few weeks ago. God's warnings are acts of love. If you love somebody, you warn them of what? Danger. That's an act of love. So this is what the Lord said to them. Look at Numbers 33 and 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes. That's what my translation say. And thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. And by golly, Look at what the Lord says here in the book of Judges. That's exactly, they should be thorns in your side. Why? Because you fail to drive them out. Sin is the same way. If we fail to drive sin out, if we fail to, to fight against sin on our knees, it's going to become a snare to us. Now, we won't fully conquer sin until we go to be with the Lord. But we can have small victories over the enslaving power of sin. Being slaves to sin. We can't overcome that. Christ is already kind of, when, when, when we're saved, guess what? We're saved from the enslaving power of sin. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we're no longer slaves to sin. But be slaves to righteousness. But we don't drive it out. Sin's going to. Look, the thing about sin, sin is never static. It doesn't stay in one place. Sin always progresses. <laughs> Just think about it like this. Sin never gets better. It, gets, it only gets worse. Sin never gets better. It only gets worse. If it's undealt with, if it's unconfessed, if it's not repented of, it will only get 
worse. That's why I say people never hit rock bottom because that sin just continues to get worse. Now, God in his mercy may restrain it, restrain the effects of it, but it's still going to have an effect. And so the people responded with weeping. Verse 4. When the angel Lord spoke these words again, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They called the name of their place Bochum. And they sacrificed to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, children of Israel, they went to that on the heritage to possess the land. So we go on to this second section. But the people lifted up their voices and wept. This was an emotional response. There was some hope behind it. Because of what they heard. But we're going to see as we read the book of Judges that this is going to happen a lot. The initial reaction of sorrow and repentance did not mature into a real and lasting repentance. Okay, weeping is not the sign of true repentance, but a change is. The, because the problem is we can be sorry about the consequences of our sin without being sorry about the sin itself. And that's, that's, that's like the worst part. Some people are sorry because they get caught doing something. But they're not sorry about the actual action. Some people apologize only because they were what? Caught. Or because of the consequences of an action. But they're not truly sorry for the sin that led to that. So these people lifted up their voices and wept. We're going to see as we go through this book that, uh, you know, It's not going to be genuine. But they sacrificed to the Lord. They did the right thing. Any awareness of sin should drive us to God's appointed sacrifice. So what Israel did was they offered sin offerings to them because that was their response. They offered sin offerings of bulls, I think, and rams. That was the sin offering that they had to offer up to God. In our day, it means remembering God's sacrifice for us on the cross and that's Jesus Christ that's how we deal with our sins we remember what Christ did for our sins what Christ did in paying that debt for our sins so now we get to the death of Joshua real quick verses 7 through 10 so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had seen the great works of the Lord which had, uh, he had done for Israel. Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of the inheritance of Timnath Heres in the mountains of Ephraim and on the north side of Mount Gaash. And when that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation. Now this is, this is something right here. Now, after Joshua died, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Now, the first people that was in the land, they had a vivid recollection of all the miracles, all the judgments that God did when he was in the wilderness. And when they came across over the Jordan, they, they, they saw God defeat uh, Jericho they defeated Ai 
They defeated the northern kings and the southern kings, and they possessed their land. They received their inheritance. But this new generation was ignorant of the experience of their parents. So these people, this new generation, were basically not believers, so to speak. So you have this flashback. Joshua died. But now we see this other generation. This next generation forgot the work that God had done, including the work that was done through Joshua. You know what this reminds me of? In our day, the reason why our nation is the way it is, the reason why people are the way they are, is because they have forgotten their creator, God. You know, I remember it was a time, you know, wasn't too long ago. It wasn't like this for everybody. Churches were filled with children. Sometimes parents would drop their children off at church because they thought church was good for them. Of course, it should have been good for the parents, too. You had churches with buses going around picking up young people to take them to church. The parents stayed at home and, and told the child, you know, like I said, it's not a good example because the parents are saying the church is not good for me, but it's good for my child. But nevertheless, the point is, you saw buses going around picking up young people for church. We know churches that, that have done that in the past. They take 20, 30, they have like two or three buses going to the, going to the projects, going to uh, Barber Terrace and going to Norwood and going to Constantine, picking up kids and, and, and bringing them to their church. Guess what? You don't see that anymore. Why? Because this generation is forgetting What got people over in the past has been forgotten, and that was worshiping God. This new generation in Israel forgot about, they did not know about the works of Joshua. This new generation had no personal relationship with God. They had no personal awareness of his power. God was someone who their parents related to and who did great things for their parents' generation. This is why it is important. We can't have faith for our family members. They have to know God for themselves. My children can't live off of my faith. They have to have their faith in God for themselves. We can't be saved for our children and our grandchildren. They're not going to coast to heaven on our coattails, they have to have a personal relationship with God themselves. They have to. We have to teach our children. Teach our grandchildren. And this is not what happened with Israel. So this new generation forgot. This new generation, another generation. And like I said, Lord, that reminds me of our day. These children not growing up, they don't care about going to church. Even I got dropped, I told y'all this, you know, I got dropped off at church. 
My mom came to church every now and then, but most times she would take me to my aunt Zetnam house who stayed down the street from Greenwood Missionary Baptist Church, like a half a mile. Dropped me off, dropped me and my brother off at, and my sister off at uh, aunt Zetnam house. And aunt Zetnam would ride to church with them, go to Sunday school, you know, do all that stuff, do the Sunday school review. We were involved in the youth choir. We were youth, I was a youth usher, you know, all that stuff, but only because I got dropped off at church. Got baptized when I was 10, although I wasn't a believer, but I was baptized when I was 10 years old at the church. But we got dropped off at church. And we would go back home. I mean, go back down to them house, and of course they would feed us a Sunday meal. And then, you know, later on in the afternoon, my mom would come pick us up, and we'll, we'll go back home. But we were at least taken to church. People don't do that now. Because why? The parents don't believe in God. The parents don't know God. So their children are not going to know. You got churches on almost every corner. Or at least per square mile. You probably got about 10 churches in this area. None of them are packed. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Just that, just that one church. I know you're talking about. Yeah, out the how, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's few and far between. Sunday mornings, most churches are empty. You see more people out driving than than anything yep. going, going doing everything else why because we've forgotten God and there's going to be dire consequences for that as we're going to see so look at verse 11 we're going to look at the apostasy then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were all around them and they bowed to them and they provoked the Lord to anger they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths so they did evil notice the Bible says they did evil idolatry is evil it's not just something fun or, or harmless rather idolatry is serious to God it's, 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 it's called evil in our, in our world people don't call it evil idolatry is evil it's evil so what they did was evil what was the evil part forsaking God they serve bells. And it's something that any person would trade a personal, real, and living God for a false God that is a figment of man's imagination. But that's what we do when we commit idolatry. When we worship our phones, when we worship social media, when we worship people. We worship relationships. Anything that we worship above God 
it is it, it, it's a figment of our imagination. God is personal, he's real, and he is living. None of our idols are. They're not personal. We'd rather serve the God of our own creation rather than serve the real and living God. That is the default of the human heart. That's why we need a savior. Our default, our nature is to worship something other than God. We'd rather serve a God in our own making, a God that we create rather than serve the living God. And the gods that we create are the gods wanted by our sinful desires. Instead of the true, living, personal God, we would rather manufacture for ourselves idols. Now, the Canaanite god Baal was an attractive rival to Yahweh. Because Baal was a god who was thought to be over the weather and over nature for the Canaanites. He was their weather and nature god. He was the god of agricultural success. And remember, they lived in an agrarian society back then. So in, in, in this society, people served Baal in order to have like uh, good weather for abundant crops. That's why they served Baal. So this was the God of Canaanites. And what did they do? They forsook the Lord. That's what they did. They forsook. You know, when you think about forsaking, you think about turning your back on God. When Christ was on the cross, he cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. God had to forsake the son when all our sins were laid on him. The father turned his back to the son in that moment because of our sins. So that's what forsaking is. We're, for, we're forsaking God. We're turning our backs on God. Now, the Ashtoreth was an attractive rival. She was a female god. She was the goddess of love, sex, and fertility. She was a priestess prostitute. So the Ashtoreth was a, was a fertility god. It was a god of all types of uh, sexual perversion. But this was the God that they served as opposed to the true and living God. So they served an agricultural God and they served a, a God of sexual uh, perversion. Anytime we pursue idols, we are forsaking God. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers, as the scripture says. And to be honest with you, 
as, as, as some people try to do now. Israel probably didn't think that they were forsaking God in doing this. They thought they were maybe adding a few gods alongside the God of their fathers. Syncretism. Like you can worship God and worship the idols as some people think they can do now. You can worship God and practice yoga. You can worship God and practice astrology. You can worship God and, and, and worship your zodiac sign. You can worship God and, and, and uh, trust in crystals and all those different things. No, anytime you put something on the same plane with God, you're committing idolatry and you're forsaking God. You can't worship God and astrology at the same time. All this zodiac sign none, nonsense. Oh, this is Libra season and this is Virgo season and this is, oh, I'm a true Aquarius. Y'all know people like that to talk about that? Yeah, I'm an Aquarius. I'm a Virgo. That's, that's why I'm this way because I'm a Virgo. That's a bunch of nonsense. That's idolatry. That's, that's worshiping astrology. You can't do that and claim to worship the one true God. You are not your zodiac sign. The zodiac sign is made up. It's astrology. That doesn't come from scripture. You don't hear scripture talk about zodiac signs. That's, that's something that's man-made. Whether you're a Libra because you're born certain times of the year. Friends, that is idolatry. That is not, that is made up by man. Please understand that. Your so-called zodiac sign is made up by man. It does not come from scripture. So you can't worship God and worship your so-called zodiac sign. What does one thing have to do with the other? Nothing. When you do that, you're forsaking the Lord. One good way, one good illustration of our relationship with God is describing it as a marriage between a husband and a wife. It would be wrong for a wife or a husband to add many lovers to their marriage. Claiming that she or he could simply love them all. The husband or wife has a righteous claim on the exclusive affection of their spouse. God has a righteous claim on our exclusive worship. I as a husband cannot rightly love another woman other than my wife. Because if I do that's not love. I can't love two people, two women like that at the same time. That betrays what marriage is. It's a one flesh union. A man should leave his mother, father, and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Not the three, or the four, or the five, or the six. I can't love my wife and love another woman, bring another woman into our marriage. And it be a marriage. It's not a marriage at that point. We can't do the same thing with God. We can't say, oh, I love the Lord, but then bring some other type of idols in, some other type of idolatry into 
our relationship with God. We'll be committing spiritual adultery. God has a righteous claim on our exclusive worship. Just as a husband has exclusive claims to his wife and the wife has exclusive claims to her husband. God has exclusive claims to us. Anything else outside of that betrays God. And that's what Israel did. So he continues here looking at this verse. So they served Baal's natural. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to the plunders who plundered them. Hold on, I'm in the third. No, I'm, I'm, I'm in the right one. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm going back to verse 12. They went out to other gods, the gods among the peoples, and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. So, the influence of the Canaanites that they allowed to remain in their midst was the root cause of their tragic idolatry. This says uh, Delores had suggested. They followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. That's uh, verse 12. And, and, and you know Delores had made that point. All these Canaanites. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15 chapter uh be not deceived. Evil communication corrupts good morals. You surround yourself. Friends, that's why we got to stay prayed up. That's why we got to stay in the word. We live in a sinful world. We have to be around sinners. But we have to make sure. We have to make sure. That we're not influenced by evil. We work around people who are unbelievers. We have to pray, Lord, keep me from evil. Lead me not into temptation. As I, I thought about this past Sunday, by prayer, praying always. Lord, lead me not to temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. Pray that when you go into work, Lord, deliver me from temptation. Lead me not to temptation, but deliver me from evil, from evil influences, from people who hate you. And people who try to persuade me to not worship you. Every day, Lord. And he will. He's faithful. We don't, we don't pray from a position of worry. We pray from a position of faith, knowing that God is faithful to answer that prayer. Lord, keep us from being influenced by the evil that is around us. The evil we see in society. The evil we see in culture. The evil we see on our jobs. The evil we see among our family members and, and friends. Because we don't want to be like Israel who was influenced by these people. And Lord is faithful to do it. So verse 14 to 15. So God's wrath was upon them. The anger of the Lord was hot. <laughs> Some translators say that. That the anger of the Lord was hot. Woof. Man. 
it was hot against Israel. Or kindled, as some translations say. The Lord was angry, and he had a right to be angry. The response of God to the unfaithfulness of Israel was no surprise. None. Why? Because God had specifically promised that he would do this in his covenant with them. He told them what would happen in Deuteronomy 28. The blessings and the curses. God told them. So of course he was hot because it's not like they didn't know. Now thank God we serve under a different covenant. We serve under a better covenant. Hebrews 8 and 6 tells us. That we are under a better covenant established under better promises. When we forsake God and do not abide in Christ, things may or may not go badly for us. But this is not because God has actively set his hand against us, okay? When we don't abide in Christ and things go badly for us, it's because our actions have consequences and we reap the bitter fruit of not keeping ourselves in the love of God. Jude 1 and 21 tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. Our actions do have consequences. But God doesn't do away with us forever. Because of the work of Christ. That's the better covenant that we are under. So what did God do? He delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who. Yep. Now, what was the purpose in all this? When Israel was greatly distressed, they would turn their hearts back to the Lord. God's goal wasn't punishment. It was repentance. He sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand the enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. This is God's love for Israel instead of his hate. The worst judgment that God can bring upon a person is to leave them alone. To stop trying to bring them to repentance. But this didn't happen with Israel. Think about this, the relationship between parents and children. <laughs> you know, most times children often want their parents to what, leave them alone, right? But it's also a child's worst fear that their parents wouldn't love them enough to correct them. Children want to be corrected by their parents. It, no, deep down inside, they all do. They they may rebel against that, but they want to be corrected. They rebel against the correction, right, because of their sinful nature, but they want that correction. Children want correction. They want order. That's why when they don't have it, they act out. Because they know they may not be able to express it right, but deep down inside, it's their nature to want correction. It's their nature. It's a child's nature to want correction. We raise a child with no correction at all. They become 
a, a child of hell when they become adults and if they can articulate to their parents they'll say why didn't you show why, why didn't you teach me this why didn't you show me that this was wrong or you know they, they get real upset at their parents when they find out that my mom and dad didn't tell me that this was wrong my mom and dad didn't, they let me do whatever I want to do and I thought it was okay yes ma'am Yeah. Yeah. No, you weren't wrong. Yeah, that's fine. Well, that's fine. It, it, it's okay. You're doing it in a loving way. You're doing it for a loving reason, and and that's fine. It's, it's never wrong with that. It's never wrong with that at all. You know, but that's what we do. Yeah, it's 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 okay to it's okay to correct. Correction is actually a form of love. So God correcting Israel by punishing them, not necessarily punishing them, but by chastising them was a form of love. So He delivered them to the hands of their plunderers to be punished. So, what did God do as an act of mercy? Verse 16. This is where we see the mercy of God. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges. (laughs) But they played the harlot with other gods. We're going to see that so much. Played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judges and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity or compassion by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. So this is a pattern that we're going to see throughout the rest of the book. They're going to be oppressed. God is going to respond to them in mercy. He's going to send them a judge. And then when that judge dies, guess what? They're going to go back to what they were doing. We're going to see that as a pattern. We're going to see God's mercy. Because of his great love for his people, God raised up judges. Remember, they didn't have Joshua, so God raised up judges for them. That's why this book is called Judges. And these judges were used to rescue them from calamity, from destruction. He did this nevertheless. It wasn't because Israel deserved it. It was because of God's love for them. Yet, Although God gave them these leaders, they did not listen to them in matters of spiritual leadership. They played the harlot. Played the harlot means carried along by a spirit of of sexual immorality, fornication. Whoredom is the old ancient word for it. They care not how they wasted all upon it. They became idolaters. They played 
the harlot. You know what a harlot is, right? Like a prostitute. That's what they were doing when they were serving these other gods. They were, they were, they were committing spiritual adultery against God. That's what they were doing. And think, the Lord was with all these judges that he had given them. The source of the power that the judges had came from the Lord. It says the Lord was with the judge. So all the Israel did wrong. It says here the Lord was moved with what? Pity by their groaning. So during the time of judges, remember, Israel only cried out to God in times of emergency. And God did answer them in pity. And this principle here, think about it, is why some people are always in a constant state of crisis. God knows the only way we can be kept from crisis is to do what? Trust in him. That's the only way. God's desire is that we have a constant dependence on him, not always be in constant crisis by forsaking him. If a person is always in some type of crisis situation, it's because they're not depending on God. And that's the way Israel was. Jesus lived in total dependence upon the Father. John 5 and 19 says this. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. So Israel was in crisis because they stopped depending on God. When we stop depending on God, remember, Christ or what? Chaos. When we stop depending on God, when we stop serving God, it's going to be chaotic no matter what. That's what we see in our culture, our society. That's what we see in politics. That's what we see in everything. Sometimes in our own lives, in our own families, people who don't worship God, guess what? It's going to always be chaotic. People are always in drama. Why? Because they don't worship God. The very people that say no drama are the ones who are always in drama. <laughs> Why? Because they're not worshiping God. They're not depending on God. So again, it says when the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers. And remember, we're going to see this pattern. Basically, bondage, deliverance, and blessing, and then referring back, followed by sin and bondage again. It's going to be a repeated pattern throughout this book. For us in Christ, we'll be we've been freed from this bondage. Remember, this these these days in Judges that there was no king over Israel. We have a king. We have the kingship of Jesus Christ. We have a ruler. Amen. It says they did not cease from their own doings. Their sin was their own doing. Nor from their stubborn way. 
stiff-necked. Stubborn means stiff-necked. Israel was, was, was referred to as stiff-necked people in the wilderness. A stubborn and stiff-necked people God called them. Although they were in a different location in the promised land, it still did not change who they were. It still did not change their hearts. And th this shows the principle that, okay, Exodus 32, I'm just reading this, you don't have to turn to it. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. That's Exodus 32 and 9. This is at the, the, uh, the, the whole golden calf thing when Moses went up to the mountain for a long time, and they took a while, and then the people, of course, Aaron to, you know, they took up our Jewish and made this golden calf, and Moses came and saw that and broke the tablets and so forth and so on, and God's about to bring his judgment on them. God said that they are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. Many, many years later, it's still the same thing. The people are what? Stubborn. It's not, many people think, oh, if I just went to a new city, if I just got out of Anniston, if I just moved out of Calhoun County, if I just get out of the state of Alabama, things will be much better. My life will be much more improved. No, location does not change your heart. It's not sanctification by relocation. Wherever you go, you take you with you. <laughs> a new environment doesn't mean a new attitude because attitude begins in the heart. A new environment won't change your heart. It won't change your sin nature. In fact, it'll expose your sin nature. Israel being a new location in the promised land, it still didn't change the fact that they were a stiff-necked people. And this was a totally different generation than the one that was in the wilderness. But they were still stiff-necked. So God gave them over. Last few verses here. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, because... This nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice. I will no longer drive out the nations from before them, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out from immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Excuse me. And why did God do this? After setting their hearts on sinful things, Israel found that God gave them what their sinful hearts desired. And this illustrates the great danger of setting our hearts on sinful things. We may get to the point where God will allow us to have them. But it's going to bring misery and bondage and pain into our lives. And that's what we're going to see with Israel. Be careful not to pray. No, be careful to pray against your sinful desires. Because God may very well grant your sinful desires. 
But you know what they're going to do? It's going to be in pain and misery. You may think it's good for you, but ultimately it's not. It's going to be in pain and misery. May we learn from Israel, from this example, to turn to and worship the living God, to flee from idolatry, pray and ask God's help in sanctifying us and making us more like Christ. Amen.